Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry, and with that razor-sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, let's get back to one of your favorite themes, which is friendship. You mentioned you wanted to talk about it, so I'm all ears. Um, yeah, I think the best place to start um, is with Shakespeare, who naturally wrote about Shakespeare. He wrote, I mean, wrote about friendship as he wrote about many other things. Let me give you a few quotes of what Shakespeare said. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, he uh, from Richard II, he said, I count myself in nothing else so happy as in a soul, remembering my good friends. Pretty positive mm-hmm. statement. Very much so. And in uh, Henry VI, uh, he wrote, uh, Thy friendship makes us fresh and doth beget new courage in our breasts. Well, that's so true uh, that a friend can make you feel so much better that when you felt down and not capable of doing anything, you suddenly are ready to go forth and do it. He didn't always say such nice things about friendship. It as you like it. He said, thy sting is not so sharp as friend remembered not. Most friendship is feigning, most loving mere folly. Shakespeare could be counted to, <laughs> counted on to see both sides. Yes, indeed, indeed, especially in his comedies, too. Of anything. So, but then he's back on top of things uh, with a plus statement and much ado about nothing. Friendship is constant in all other things, save in the office and affairs of love. Mm. Well, what he's saying there is that you can a good friend is a good friend, but when it gets to love and sex and romance, watch out, boy. Especially in the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you start mixing business with pleasure. Look out, baby. This is Polonius's advice about friendship to his son Laertes and Hamlet. Those friends thou hast, and their adoption tried, grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. Well, Polonius uh, was sort of a fool in the play, but he he had some great quotes. That's one of them. (laughs) The other one is uh, that I remember is neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend. Yes. Very uh, very wise Polonius for the fool that he was. (laughs) Remember he in that play he was stabbed through the curtain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was they said it was curtains for you, Polonius. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. what they said. Polonius. And also, we in one of his sonnets, Sonnet Thirty, um, for friends like those, another plus statement. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored, and sorrows end. Well then. That's the way I think about you, Jordan. I mean, oh, I come over you. here thank and you tell me all sorts of nice <laughs> things. And I'm fine. I go back there. Hey, Larry. Jesus, you're terrific, Jordan. <laughs> yes, that mutual admiration thing is working for me. <laughs> Absolutely. So then, um, Jordan, um, I think that um, in that article I wrote about you, um, we talked about that. Um, I talked about you introducing me to podcasting. I knew so little about podcasting. I really didn't know what it was. Uh, when we started out, uh, your uh, friend and uh, 
associate Dan um, Thebo. Uh, Thebo, yes. Yeah, explained some of right, it right. to me, and I began to hook onto it. I don't think I have the followers that I want, but I think I might be able to get them. You're building, you're building an audience. That's the way podcasts work, as I told you. Right? But I said in the article that I wrote about you that you emboldened me to begin the series and now has close to 60 episodes. Um, so um, that, that has brought us much closer in terms of friendship, and it proves the point that friendship can come at any time. After all, lately— I've made, uh, you know, we've become friends, and I'm in your, you're in your 60s? In my 60s, yeah. And I'm in yeah. my 90s, and I've become friends with uh, Elliot, who's a brilliant kid in high school who just turned 17. And he, he I, I can tell from, from oh, I, I sent him the, what I wrote about you, and he said, well, that's, that's uh, cool. He says, I, I wish I could write that way. And uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll write a memoir someday. There you go. So He's I a said Brookline, to him, is he Brookline High student? Brookline High School. So yeah. I wrote back to him. I said, you will, Elliot. Let me just say something right here, Larry. And I'm, we're just being totally open as we always are. I think the idea of having friends of any age, stripe, color, size, geographic, that's what makes friendship special. It's not just relegating yourself to a click to the same group. Nothing wrong with being in a group, but I, I've i always had friends when I was in my teens in their later years, and you've always had friends many times in their younger years, and it makes life a lot richer that way, doesn't it? It sure does, and Jordan, that is the perfect segue into the surprise. And we, and we don't even rehearse these things. <laughs> we don't rehearse our ad-libs. Okay, I'm all all set for you, my friend. Well, Jordan, I mean, I, you know, I, I, of course I know this about you. Um, I, I don't think I could have articulated it quite the way you did so well just now, but I certainly know how you feel about things, and that's one of the things that attracts me to you and your presence because, you know, our ideas are not that are pretty close. I think the surprise is that um, on this particular portion, I want to ask you some questions. I, I, we've done this before on the subject of depression where I've been the interlocutor mm-hmm. and you've been the, the person who's answered the questions and vice versa. So usually you're asking me the, right. the questions, but let's do it the, the Okay, other way and again, this is totally off the cuff. I've not – practiced or rehearsed or seen any of this so yeah, it's no big deal you I love it I love it I love playing without a net go yeah, right ahead well, you can answer and uh, let's see I got about I don't know 20 questions so you don't have to go okay you can answer them uh, I want you to answer fully but economically okay um, so what is friendship friendship in my uh, opinion is connection you have with someone who is going to love you or like you a lot without no matter what you end up doing uh, with with certain exceptions we're not talking about you know genocide or anything like that friendship of people who accept you for who you are and people who who are not looking for anything beyond connection I think there are too many people in life who are looking to take advantage and get ahead and use people. And I know mean, you've been in the situation where you're talking to somebody at a party and they're looking over your shoulder at the next person. That to me is not friendship. Friendship is 
sharing deep, deep, important issues, sharing laughter, and uh, and not holding anyone to a certain standard that is unfair. I think it's just being accepting and uh, and and enjoying the company of other people at the same time. How's that? <laughs> yeah, my happy listen, Jordan. I love it. I mean, anything you answer is going to be fine. Um, what? Uh, so, what? What are the what are the benefits of friendship? Oh, innumerable. Um, most important thing about friendship is knowing you're not alone, and people care about you. Uh, we're all children of this this life who come into the world alone and leave it alone. In the middle is where we want to be accepted and, and nurtured and cared for and also know that what we have to say matters and somebody's listening. So I think it's the sense that there's somebody there for us. We all need someone, no matter how rich, no matter how powerful, uh, no matter how simple, we need people in our lives. Yeah. What does friendship have to do with health? Well, uh, if you hang around uh, people who uh, uh, eat at McDonald's every day and that's all they want to do, it probably is not going to improve your health. No knock on fast food necessarily. No, I think uh, being uh, – we've seen this happen in real time with the pandemic when people were shut off from their their contacts and their, their connections and many people withered. They withered emotionally. They withered spiritually, mentally and in some cases physically. So I think, as you've said on more than one occasion to me, when we do this together, when we have fun, we engage, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's light, there's an energy, there's a force of good that happens between people. It's not something you can see, but then again, you can't see radio waves, right, Larry? So I think it's very fosterable for, for good health to be in that relationship. Human beings are not a, designed to live solitary lives as hermits. We don't do well, as Howard Hughes. <laughs> so there you go. These are great questions, by the way. What must life be like for those without friends? Well, I was just alluding to that. Um, people that uh, choose to live solo or friendless, uh, that's a choice you can make, and there's no one forcing you to be with people. But I think the life for them is one of often one of anger, uh, one of short temper, short sightedness, and um, I'm going to use the B word, boring. I mean, if I didn't have the people I have in my world, friends, colleagues, associates, business people, friends, I, I would be so bored. I mean, you can only watch so much TV and read so much, and none of these things interact with you like friends do. So I think it's a, it's a lonely, boring life that that it allows you to slip into curmudgeon land. <laughs> That's right. I just made that up. <laughs> I wonder if uh, Arthur Fiedler, who was described as a curmudgeon, had a lot of friends. You know, he. It's it's funny. There are a lot of people who get that term placed on them, curmudgeon. Uh, and I, I, I think they're, they're probably surrounded by people who love them and they probably have a lot of people they really do care for. I think partly it's sort of fun to be a curmudgeon sometimes, you know, except in the case of, say, Ebenezer Scrooge, where he just had to have a, 
a whole soul lift in the middle of his life there in the middle of Christmas. But I think I think uh, I think Fiedler had well he had fans he had millions of fans. He must have. And uh, he liked firemen, so maybe he had a good connection with the fire department. You know, I'd be willing to bet that the people that you just described uh, as having a lot of anger and so forth because they don't have friends, I think uh, this is just no. I have no statistics to back it up, but I bet most of the people who do these killings and attacks and are, are of that description. It's almost inevitable. They are loners. They're. Um, Unfortunately, they're young males, many of them uh, raised by single parents or just not raised well, but they're loners. They're, they don't have friends. And the people that were their friends have moved on because they're, they're sensing something very, very troubling. So friends can also be interceptors of, of harm and can spot harm happening to someone and hopefully – turn them around and turn them on to getting help. Um, we talked about depression, you and I. Having a friend to talk to, not a therapist alone, but a friend, is one of the greatest gifts, you know. Even not people who had depression, but people who would listen and not judge. So that's where the health comes in. What are the different levels of friendship? When I say that, somebody can be a close friend, a casual friend, um, an acquaintance, uh, yeah. a, a friend that, that you share secrets with, uh, that you allow that person to see your inner self, all sorts of friends. So mm. uh, how would you answer that question? Well, you're right. Uh, there's the intimate connection you have with someone that you share deep secrets with. But it, to, to me, it doesn't have to be how many times do you get together for dinner or go out to the movies or whatever. That that used to be what I thought when I was a kid. But when you get older, it's just how you connect when you connect. So I have a f very dear friend I went to high school with. I might see him once every other year. He lives in California. He works out there. So it's technically, you know, physically difficult. But we connect. Um, and when we connect on an email or a phone call or in person – it's as if we've saw each other yesterday. And I think that's the, the thing is it's hard to put your finger on it, but a friend is not someone that has to be out there in the social limelight with you every week uh, coming over to your house for dinner and inviting you there. It can be somebody you don't see for weeks, months, years, but there's something there that's strong. There's a bond. And I do believe colleague is a great word for business associates. There are a lot of people I like to hang around with when I'm in the studio, when I'm doing things, uh, when I'm on the road. But because of time and, and um, efficiency, that's about the only time I get to see and hang with them. I still consider them friends, many of them. Oh, sure. And I think that's a cool thing. But yet, I think the idea of having to be somewhere um, – with dinner involved or a drink or whatever, a coffee, is I think it's an overused excuse to have a friend. I, I, I'm, that didn't sound right. It, it's a, it's a time-worn definition that I think is outdated. Let me put it that way. Well, as you've heard me say um, before, like somebody like John Caulfield who moved away about 25 years ago, and a friend of somebody that if you haven't spoken to them, 
for a couple of months and you left off in the middle of a sentence or a subject and you just start talking about that as though you were still talking about it. That's like, that's a good... I, I've good. had people in radio, there's there's stories about guys who would sign off at the end of a particular stretch. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. Sherm Feller, we've talked about him off air. He was the famous voice of the Red Sox from Fenway Park, 1967 to 92. And he used to do a radio show on a daytime station, which means they had to sign off at sunset. And he would sign off his show in the fall. You know, he'd say goodbye and I'll see you in the spring. And when he would come on in the spring, when the hours changed, when daylight changed, the first words out of his mouth were always the same. As I was saying, <laughs> that's what you're talking about, man. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that, uh, yeah, that's so true. And um, another thought that comes to my mind is that I'm not, I'm not a joiner. I'm not a group person. I, you know, I, 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 people belong to country clubs. They belong to the Masons, this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I suppose they look upon all these people as friends. But uh, you talked a little about that in your answer. That doesn't appeal to me. No, I don't begrudge people, and I don't feel that they're not being true to what they need for friendship. Uh, just not me either. I'm a little bit of that Groucho Marx. Anyone that would have me as a member, I, any club that would have me as a member, I'm not a member of, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but... Uh, I've never needed that. I was never – we're all so much alike, Larry. I was never a joiner when I was a kid. Uh, the only thing I involved myself in was drama, theater. Because, and that's where I had my closest friendships with the people I was with all day and all night rehearsing. But I didn't join any of the religious uh, social groups or any of those things. Uh, I will admit we belong to a golf club. I don't really play golf that well. I don't keep score. But when I do go, I like the people I see. We have a nice relationship. And those are the golf club friends. <laughs> you know, I see and they, they're friends because they don't attack me for being a horrible golfer. <laughs> if they start doing that, they're no longer friends. So what we're doing now, Jordan, um, apparently uh, both of us are doing the same thing. One of my favorite things to do, we're digressing. You digress? <laughs> you, you, you look up digress in the dictionary. There's a big picture of L.R., Larry Rutman. <laughs> Just kidding. I like the digress, I guess. Um, well, how many close friends can a person have? It's a question of uh, organizational skills, time management. But I think you can add close friends throughout your entire lifetime. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to spend as much time with you or you with them. But I consider you a close friend. I see you. We talk a lot on the phone and via email. But I see you maybe once every couple of months these days. And I see you here in the studio where we do this cool, cool thing called the podcast. But uh, I think uh, – and you've become a close friend in the last couple of years, a close friend. And I think that's what is the the beauty in my in my estimation of friendship is that it's like a bank account, you know, the, you, you get friends with interest. One friend begets another friend. You're never going to forget the first friend or the second friend or the lifelong, but you always have room for more. I am a big believer in not putting a cap on any of this stuff. No cap. No. Absolutely. Why would you, you know, why would you? 
you and I are so curious. I meet people all the time, and I never know where it's going to go. And when things just click, and all of a sudden it's, hey, thanks for being a friend. And I say the same thing. So love it. Love it. Bring it on, baby. Well, wasn't it Yogi who said it ain't over till it's over? <laughs> <laughs> There's a fork in the road. Take it. <laughs> right. It was something. Um, what are the risks of friendship? The risks of friendship. What a great question. Um, well, putting your faith and loyalty in someone. I know I mentioned earlier, you know, you forgive a friend and you you accept a friend. But I think there's also a limit to that, obviously. If a friend uh, stabs you in the back, that's a, that's a risk. It's not a friend at that point. It's Have you had that experience? Yes, yes. Uh, a couple of times. Not close, close very close friends, but I have had that happen to me. And uh, it stings and it hurts and you feel wounded and it takes a while for the wounds to heal. Um, but I think the uh, one, and I'll add this, here's, a, here's something that comes to mind immediately. The risk of friendship is doing what I was just saying, having many, many friends and, and opening yourself up and giving yourself to other people as friends Sometimes those friends, those new friends, are thinking, I want him all to myself. Or I want her all to myself. And that can be a problem. And I don't think it's a, it's an intentional, it's not intended to harm, but it does harm when somebody tries to, you know, manhandle you, not physically, but bring you in and, and not want to share you. That's happened to me and it probably happened to you. In my career, because of my some small notoriety in this marketplace, there have been some people who have tried to take advantage of being my friend. And, and I don't even think they do it consciously, Larry. I just think it sort of comes up that way. And it's, it's a little uncomfortable. There's a risk there that you have to be aware of, I think. Uh, which friends are closer, friends outside of family or in family? Wow, another great question. Uh, I have a cousin who be, has become um, a very close friend in the last five years. We grew up together. He's about four years older, and we've become much closer again in the last five years just because he reached out and I returned the reach and we've been together. But I do think, based on my own personal experience, that the closest people in my life the ones I can share the most with are the friends, the few friends that are in that inner circle. Um, and I'll tell you one of the reasons that it's friends and not family is because my folks, my father is still here, my mom isn't, are from, we're from a different generation. You're from that same generation, but you're a much more living in today's world kind of guy. And I think in those generations past that are previous uh, for many, not you, the idea of sharing, the idea of showing your feelings was a lot less prevalent. Uh, you know, my dad went to work every day no matter what, never complained, never had an issue, fought in the war, the whole, the whole thing. And um, I just think it's easier for me personally to be closer to, to – I never had brothers. I do have brothers now. They're not – they're brothers from other mothers, but they're my – they might as well be my brothers. And that's a nice gift to have. Brothers from 
uh, non-family that I consider brothers. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Um, well, should one tell a friend? I mean, I probably should have put it. Should one tell a close friend uh, or a special friend or anyone all, well, it could be less than all, one's secret thoughts? I think less than all. I think we all need to protect ourselves to a certain extent. That's why we pay $200 an hour for therapists who are supposed to keep it to themselves. Uh, you can share a lot. I think being human means you've got a lot of things that you're uncomfortable even sharing with yourself. So being so totally open. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think it's good to be able to be open and honest. But I'm uh, not going to lie and say I, I'm totally open and honest with anyone, even the closest of friends. Some things need to stay inside, locked up. Speaking of digression, this is a digression <laughs> that's a little different. Now that I've been, now that I'm sitting here, asking you questions and looking at you, uh, we had discussed earlier. I told you how I shaved because I didn't want to come over here with a with not having shaved for 10 days. Yeah. And I'm looking at you, at your beard that you've grown, and it looks very neat and very nice. Well, I just had it trimmed before this recording today. Yeah. Uh, I go every couple of weeks to uh, a my hairdresser who trims my beard. It's one of the great moments. I haven't shaved in a year and a half, and I've saved, I figured an hour a day maybe, because I used to shave twice, maybe half an hour. I do the math. I've shaved several days off of my calendar to do other things, pardon the pun. Thank you for the compliment. You look very sharp today, very clean shaven. You use a straight edge? Or? Well, we're usually, we, you know, we've, as you said, we're similar in certain respects, but I'm clean shaven and you have a beard. I never thought I'd have a beard um, this long and I've become sort of accustomed to it. And again, I get out of bed, take a shower, do a little exercise and leave the house without having to get the shaving cream and the mess and the blades <laughs> and the thing. It's not a bad way to live. The caveman had it right. Well, what I do, <laughs> so I'm basically lazy. So what I do is I just let it grow. <laughs> and then uh, eventually it comes off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Mm -hmm. um, describe friendship in marriage between husband and wife and between Father and children. Well, you just did discuss between father and children. Uh, yes, I've always thought that I want my children to love me and I love them, but I really want them to like me and I want to like them. Now, there are a lot of people in families, you love them, but do you really like them? Do you really want to hang around? And I think that's important uh, in my life. Same thing with the mate. As you know, I was married. My first wife passed away 10 years ago, and I remarried, and uh, I really believe I remarried somebody very similar to my first wife in personality. But we have a, a good relationship in that um, we tell each other a lot, we share a lot, and we laugh a lot, and laughing is the key. And I usually do the laughing. I'm laughing at her being serious. You probably do the same thing with Lois. And... You know, they roll their eyes, and we know it's not going to mean anything in a second or two. So, yeah. Um, fathers, and as far as being a father and a grandfather, and you, you're you the grandpappy to your neighbors, which is awesome. 
it's uh, it's it's befriending a child and doing it with the utmost of intentions to be decent and good and sweet is I think one of the nicest things you can do when you offer friendship to a to an adolescent that adolescent has somebody to look up to and somebody to look forward to that is warms my heart when I think about it every day I'm tonight we're reading uh, I'll be on the phone and she'll be on the phone from New Jersey my seven-year-old we're reading some Raoul Dahl book and uh, we got through half of it I'm doing all the reading she's watching me reading along on her end it doesn't get any better than that so I, I don't know if I digressed I think on that answer no, so, listen <laughs> you did a little but that's uh, it reminds me well, first of all I think I would have been a good father but I love uh, relating to kids. I think a lot of adults talk to kids like they're kids. But I don't talk to kids like they're kids. I talk to them like they're going to understand. Now, it depends on their age. I mean, somebody five is not going to understand things you might say to a 10-year-old. So I try and be reasonable about it. But I try to respect them as people mm -hmm. by talking to them uh, about the world around them, not 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 as though it's a kid's world, but as though it's a world made up of people. Well, I think that also fosters um, the behavior in children that is likely to bring them more friends, more respect, more understanding of life. When you're when you can relate to an adult, that's why I relate so well to people in my life who are older throughout my entire life. Because as a child, I was surrounded by older people. We didn't have a big family. We had mainly grandparents and stuff, and they were always around. And I really understood that and became um, enamored with the idea of befriending anyone, not just people in my age group. And I think that's what, when you're nice to a child and you re relate to a child, I think that creates a terrific, it's a mentorship that you don't even know you're doing, you're delivering. This idea of respect and, and listening and caring. More questions? A few more. Can a friendship survive long separation? Well, we've we've you've really answered that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got friends I haven't seen or talked to for th three or four years, and it doesn't matter. We pick up right where we left off. Now, we did a couple of programs on depression. So, is there a relationship between friendship and depression? Only in the sense that, uh, in my case, when I found out what was going on in my life. I now understood what might be going along with certain friends. They were dealing with something very similar. We had never talked about it because each of us thought it was unfair to bring it up. And then when we shared, when we shared, like as you and I did on the air, it made such a difference. It was like a cathartic experience, a gift that each of us gave each other. Can race differences affect friendship? How? And examples in your experience? Oh, that's so interesting. I was talking with a gentleman uh, who or, is the founder of an organization called Race Amity um, that we're going to be doing some work together. A lovely guy. And we were talking about what matters is people. People matter, of course, and, and that's easy for anybody to say. But you got to put your mouth where your money is and money where your mouth is. The answer is it shouldn't. 
It's never been a case with me. Uh, I believe in the Martin Luther King axiom, you judge somebody on the content of character, so that there are people who are of my race, of my religion, of my social, socioeconomic class who I wouldn't want to hang around with for all the tea in China. And then there are people who are in different levels of society and different groups, whether you look at their skin color or their religion, who are some of my better pals. I mean, it shouldn't matter, and yet it does, sadly. How does it matter? People are uncomfortable being around and considering— well, people are uncomfortable. We're both Jews, okay? And uh, you've felt it, I've felt it, anti-Semitism throughout our lives. Uh, probably me less than you. Why? Because I don't have a Jewish last name. I look Italian. Uh, so, but I've felt it, and I understand what it feels like to be slighted, to be bullied, to be abused, etc. I've seen it happen. And... Uh, um. Actually, let me share a story with you real quick. This is going to be the longer podcast in the series probably. Years ago, I've told this story in my own book. Years ago, I was disc jockeying parties and weddings, you know, doing the, the record party thing. And I did hundreds of weddings and hundreds of DJ things. Got a call. This was in the mid to late 80s. Got a call from a woman who said, we are looking for a DJ for our wedding. And I said, oh, great. Let me check the date. And the date was open. And then she said, now three DJs have already turned us down. And I said, well, that's interesting. May I ask why? She said, well, because we are uh, a lesbian couple. This is before gay marriage. We're a lesbian couple and uh, they don't feel comfortable and so forth. And I thought to myself, instantly I thought, well, wait a minute. Your money is the same color as mine, first of all. And second of all, two people who love each other, what the hell do I care? I'll, I'll gladly do the wedding. And I did. I was very proud of that moment. This was way back 40 years ago when nobody even talked about this stuff. I'm not a pioneer for civil rights. I don't – but I believe that everyone is worthy and if you're going to judge who you hang around with based on their skin color, their religion, their height, their weight and not on character, then you're wasting your time. That's my opinion. Do you feel more comfortable – with a Jewish group than a non-Jewish group? Only when it comes to talking about food. <laughs> no, I don't care. I, I mean, I've been in the media now for my entire career, and uh, uh, I've got so many friends who uh, are priests wearing collars, nuns, um, Muslims. Uh, some of my, I'm not going to say some of my best friends are, because that's the cliche line, but I've had people in my life from all sorts of shapes and sizes in countries. Um, I told you where I live. I live downtown Boston in a very nice building with a tremendous staff of whom I'm friendly with just about everybody, concierge, doorman, valets. Every other one is from a different country. There are very few American-born. They're all buddies. They're all pals. And we all get along famously and I love to learn from these people. So, yeah, I don't think it doesn't enter into my thinking. Uh, just be a good person. Have a good sense of humor and uh, treat me well and I'll treat you well. Do you think you're prejudiced at all? I think everyone's prejudiced. Prejudice to me means prejudge. Do we prejudge? Absolutely. I'm not a racist in that I don't believe one race is any 
better than another race. I think that's the defin true definition of racism. I don't believe in segregation. Um, but I certainly do think we, are, we prejudge situations. We prejudge organizations. It's almost inevitable. That's the human experience. So to say that number one is without bias is, is untrue. But let's call it what it is. You know, if you're going to uh, disparage an entire group of people just because they look differently, then you're, you've got something wrong. Well, I think I think what you're saying is is consistent with the your remark that we think alike. I, you know, I think like that too. I, I I mean, if if you were to say to me, "Are you prejudiced?" I would say I would say the same thing. Everybody is somewhat prejudiced. Listen, we have our we prejudge situations. That's actually a, an important element to survival as well. Um, it's when it goes far afield and when people start judging on the basis of just the way somebody looks or has the, the money that somebody has in the bank or whatever. You know, you treat people right. You treat yourself right. You have respect for others. You'll never have a – I'll never have a problem with you, ever. Um, Jordan, despite what it looks like on the printed page, <laughs> you don't have that much more. <laughs> um, but you'll, this question I think you'll enjoy answering – You've had a long relationship with your business partner. I forget his name, but you'll tell us. Ken. Tell us why, when, when did it start and why has it lasted so long? And what are the major characteristics of, of what must be a tremendous friendship? People do remark, you know, clients of ours, we've been in business since 1980. We've met in 1976 in college. His name is Ken, and we are of the same age. I'm three months, two months older. A lot of it has to do with um, the same interests, you know, broadcasting, radio, performance, all that stuff. That's first and foremost. That's what brought us together, sat in the same classroom. What's his name again? Ken Carberry is his name. That's number one. Number two is the, uh, the fact that he comes from a, a large family. I come from a small family, but... This was an intact family, very family-oriented. He's Irish. I'm Jewish. doesn't matter. And uh, number three, we both connected when it came to humor. We both share almost an identical sense of humor. So you've been here in, in the office prior to recording with me alone, and you've seen the interplay between Ken and his brother, Kurt, the other one. Uh, the handsome guy. The, the handsome guy, right. And it's always puns and cutting and shtick and all that. And I know that sounds superficial, but it really makes a difference. I look forward to coming in every day and having that kind of repartee. But it's well beyond that. It's We've shared uh, high good times and, and low times, illness, death. Um, I've been fired from radio jobs. He's lost gigs. I mean, we all go through life together, but... We're two peas in a pod. Literally, I, that's when I meant brother. You know, that's a brother that I, I'm not biologically connected to, but I might as well be. And you'll get a kick out of this, Lair. We joke a lot, and uh, one of the jokes is that he's an honorary Jew because we used to do bar mitzvahs as DJ entertainers together. And he's the only Irishman I know who now knows how to say the moitzi over the uh, challah. <laughs> Bet you can you say it? 
Baruch Ata Adonai. No, go ahead. Eloheinu melakolam amotzi lecha min ha'oretz. Amen. And he's good at that. He can do it, like, better than you. <laughs> That's easy. No, I'm just kidding. He's, he's, and, and I'll tell you the, la, the last point on this. It's a 50-50 relationship. There's never been anything but. If I make uh, a project work and we get a certain, you know, cash inlay, it's shared equally. And final point, uh, and this is going to sound dramatic, but, you know, he would go to the ends of the earth for me and I would, would do it for him. Whatever, whatever needs to be done. I bet you've never had a real issue come up between you. Never, never. We've disagreed on how to get something done. We've never been disagreeable. And that's so rare. That is like wildly rare. The joke is we're really the Sunshine Boys. Remember the Sunshine Boys? Yeah. With Walter Matthau and George Burns in the movie? Sunshine Boys, yeah, I haven't talked to him in 40 years. I'm not talking to him. And then we joke with clients. But it's a great relationship, wonderful relationship. Uh, sounds like it. Mm-hmm. I, think, uh, I think it's wonderful. Jordan, I want to talk about our own friendship. I value it highly, as I wrote. Um, right, uh, might I read a few words of uh, what I wrote? Of course. Each of us is, quote, unquote, each of us has suffered depressions in our, in our life. Not loath to talk about it if it might help others and provide hope. We did two long podcasts um, on this common disease plaguing mankind. Now they are being considered for wider distribution. I know you do too, that is value uh, friendship, having called me a quote-unquote true friend. Granted, our friendship is in progress and has been primarily professional, but what does quote-unquote true friend, as you wrote to me, mean to you? I can joke with you. I didn't when we first met, but I can joke with you. We can have fun together while we're producing something and creating something. And it's also uh, a sense of trust. I trust you, Larry, to deliver not only in the studio, but to be there, to be dependable in all ways. And we've gotten to know each other. You met my wife at one point in the uh, restaurant passing through just by chance. I know your wife Lois better now because she comes in and she's your official driver and uh, road manager. Let's put it that way. I just think you trust me and I trust you. You know that when when you ask me to do something, I'm going to do it. Not just because it's what I have to do, because I want to do it. I love the fact that you're 92 and you're as spry and exciting and interested and curious about life as anybody I've ever known, and you give me inspiration. Well, that's nice to hear you say, Jordan, and uh, you know that my feelings for you are reciprocal. I think the way I'd like to end this is um, to mention a few friends of mine that are true friends, so to speak. My close true friends are Melvin Gleskall, a lawyer who's about my age, that I've known since we were housemates at the University of Massachusetts, who's given me many great ideas and is always wonderful to talk to because he's very bright about a lot of things. And uh, he has a few physical problems now, but his mind is as great as ever. He's as funny as he ever was, as stubborn as he ever was, Mm. and as uh, 
uh, idea-laden as he ever was and totally supportive of me and never, never envious of anything I do, quite to the contrary. There's um, Gene, uh, that would be um, Gene Bailey. He's an Irishman who grew up in New York State and had his own publishing company. And I was his lawyer many, many years ago when he bought a house. And he told me one time, came as a surprise to me, we liked you then because we trusted you so much. And Gene has helped me through my entire publishing career uh, because um, he's just um, been a great friend. And he's given me all sorts of information about publishing. And I talk to people in the business uh, using what he's taught me so that it comes, uh, it, it disarms them and gives me an, advan- uh, an advantage. One of the reasons I'm doing this um, right now is because it just seems nat- natural, even though this is a long podcast, to talk about some of these people. Um, and uh, then there's John Caulfield. I've spoken um, at, uh, about him quite a bit. I used to be my next-door neighbor, lives out in California now. At a, at a little, other personal friends are Milt Crane, my roommate from uh, college, who lives in Atlanta. We've been friendly ever since we met at 17. Yale Altman, who uh, lives close by, is about my age, lives in Harvard, and uh, he's been my friend since grammar school. He was a great baseball player, still sharp. I'm very lucky that Friends that I've known for a long time and who are my age still are very sharp people and great uh, to know. Recent friends that I've talked about are Elliot at 17 and you, Jordan, at uh, 60 what? Paul McCartney, when I'm 64. (laughs) (laughs) Paul McCartney is a... Is a great. Uh, he's catching up to you, by the way. He's 80, 81 or eighty-two, so he's yeah, right he's around. getting up there, but he's still very active. Professionally, um, I've spoken of Susan Worst, who's helped me uh, mm. as in a thousand different ways to put out my books for the last fifteen or eighteen years. Very smart, very committed. Advises me all the time. Don't do this. Don't do that. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. And in the same category as Kathy Jeunesse, who was my secretary is a, is a weak word for her. Uh, she was certainly on the level of a paralegal, but even higher, Kathy Jeunesse uh, was with me for 25 years, and she's still a good friend, still does things for me. I knew her first when she was like 18, and now she's in her 60s. How lucky I am. When it comes to family, there's Lois. She's, we've talked about her a lot. She's a wonderful friend, and uh, the only thing you left out, Jordan, in describing her a few seconds ago, was that she's my nurse. <laughs> and your sock provider. Yeah, my, oh, right. Right. <laughs> Great socks. And my neighbor, Eileen, I just spoke about, the lady from Malaysia. Uh, medically, we you talk about meeting people from forest country, foreign countries. Medically, my backup on an informal basis are Marinos Sherolambos from Cyprus, and I travel to Greece with him, 
Michaela that I just spoke about, um, Michaela, the lady from Germany, uh, Michaela Schneiderbauer, six feet tall, a great athlete. Uh, Gui Fu from China, who's one of the top cardiologists in China, a wonderful guy. We traveled all over China, and we were friends from the time we met a decade ago, and we're still very good friends, write to each other. Musically, Matt O'Coin, who's now uh, world famous, who I met uh, when he was in his late 20s, and we sat outside for two hours, and we bonded at that time. And Matt O'Coin, to my pleasure and to my, uh, I guess you'd say, delight, is a very good friend. We communicate all the time. Some people put him on the level of a Mozart, so I'm wondering why he's talking to me. Yes. <laughs> because he's so smart, he must have an IQ of 160. I mean, the guy, the guy writes music, composes lyrics, writes articles, plays the piano, conducts orchestras. I mean, what doesn't he do? And then my mentor, really, is a guy that you might know— uh, uh, Jordan is Justin Weiner, mm-hmm. who is the. He was at that party that uh, you officiated at the. Yeah, he's very close to the, to uh, Brenton Simon. Uh, the New England Genealogical Society. Genealogical. Is what you're talking list. about? Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. And um, Justin, he was walking down, the street one day, went into the building and proposed that the Jewish organization that he headed and uh, gathered uh, important documentation, historical documentation, that they join with the Genealogical Society. And now at one address down there on, what's that street, uh, the famous shopping street? Uh, Newbury Street. Newbury Street. Now it's a combination of the uh, Genealogical Society and the newly formed Jewish Historical Society. Now, Justin is 97, or 98 maybe. His wife died just about a year or two ago. Weiner is spelled W-Y-N-E-R. And the the uh, Jewish Historical Society is now called the Justin, and uh, his wife's name was, um, I'm trying to think of his wife's name, uh, and Genevieve uh, Weiner, Jewish Historical mm-hmm. Society. Anyway, he wrote a memoir three or four years ago. And, you know, I consider this guy just a wonderful giving guy. Comes from a very long-time Jewish family. And uh, the company that his father and maybe even his grandfather formed is the— it's a weaving company. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Um, but a very successful company. And uh, when he sent the memoir to me, he wrote in it, I wrote this memoir because of the article you wrote about me as the, uh, as the moderator of the Brookline Town Meeting for several years and inspired me to write this memoir of, mm. of myself because of what you did. Wow, what a great, again, a great turnaround, a great 
come back. So there, there's a listing of, of some friends. Maybe there's 12 or 13 names there. Um, and um, I just wanted to put that in uh, because um, this is all about friendship. And um, you're lucky to have some great friends. And I'm sitting right across from one, my friend. Right, and I guess I'm lucky. <laughs> You've talked a lot on this one, Jordan. I did, I did. And again, it was totally um, unexpected. That's the best way to do it, conversation alive and well, and I appreciate that very, very much. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. I loved it. And um, you you said about some of the questions, that's a great question. God, I, I said to myself, am I, am I asking the right questions? You did absolutely fine. You're the, you're the next late-night talk show host on NBC when, <laughs> when Jimmy retires. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Jordan. And uh, I guess Lois and I will drive back to Brookline now. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.